Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fast Pass, the history podcast in close to 30 minutes or less. As always, I'm Megan. I'm Jason. And here's your weekly reminder to wash your hands. Wash your goddamn hands. <laughs> Today is the last episode of our series of putting a magnifying glass to the issues within our own country that are often ignored or straight up left out of traditional history. We're good at and, that. Yeah. And if you haven't figured it out from all the episodes this month, it's kind of fucked up. Yep. Um, now, this last topic is actually one that is very prevalent in American history. It's not as hidden as most of the other topics we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to take the time to look at it from a less hyper-nationalistic perspective. Oh, dear. See, <laughs> one of the problems with having history taught chronologically is that we are susceptible to the same outrage of people from that time. What I mean by that is we get so caught up in the story that we make judgments based on these residual feelings rather than fact, especially when it comes to something negative happening to the people of the United States. Mm-hmm. So we're relating to the feelings of generations past is, I guess, what I'm trying to say here. So since we're American and it was other that it, it was an atrocity or something bad that happened to other Americans, you're saying that we're taking up the feeling of Americans at the time period of when it happened. Yeah, we're relating to those feelings of that time period. Got it. Right. So we're we're reigniting a flame that should have been put out a while ago. (laughs) Yes. Got it. So what topic are we ending this with? Pearl Harbor, which I know, I know. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Yeah, people are going to be like, but this is so well documented and known. It doesn't fit with your month at all. You guys are scams. First of all, no. (laughs) Yeah, we're doing this for free. There's no scam here. There's no scam here. Um... And you are partially right, but we're going to try to look at this from a different point of view. Okay. So, we decided to do a piece on Japanese internment camps first, so that we can see the effect before we look at the cause. Sometimes, like Megan mentioned, it's easier for us to make excuses for the effect because of the cause. So, like in this case, it's easier to learn about internment camps after getting upset about the loss of American life in Pearl Harbor. Exactly. And I think it's that's part of why we don't learn much about it. Most people would just brush things off as a wartime precaution, like mm-hmm. putting people in camps, which is wrong, yes. obviously. Now, learning effect before the cause gives us a more disconnected view of the situation. Again, I'm hoping I'm making sense, but without this, with this fragmented way of learning history, we're breaking that traditional generational feeling. And, and I've got statements on that, but I'll save those until after we get through the episode and lay out like the facts before I get into my opinion. Great. So let's just get back onto the topic at hand, Pearl Harbor. Now, I think one of the most frustrating things when learning about this topic in schools is how fragmented it is. It goes from wars happening in Europe, Japan is an ally, to, oh my god, I don't know where they bombed us for no reason. My American pride is wounded. But that's not completely the case. Are you laughing at me? A little bit, yeah. (laughs) But that is not completely the case. So as with everything, let's give some context. So the United States and Japan had a complicated history and complicated feelings towards one another. Japan had expansion on the mind, much like many countries that we consider, quote, world powers had in the past. But this desire to expand didn't sit well with the United States, who wanted to contain their level of expansion. Now, in 1937, Japan declared war on China. They wanted the resources that were in mainland China so they could become a more self-sufficient nation. Hmm. See, they relied on the United States for their iron, steel, and oil. More than half of this came from the United States. Now, declaring war on China made tensions between the two nations worse than before, obviously. The U.S. still continued to send them supplies, though, even while they committed atrocities like the rape of Nanking. And yes, 
if you're wondering, that will be an episode we're doing later. Okay. It wasn't until Japan officially joined the Axis powers in 1940 that things really changed between the United States and them. After this, the United States put heavy sanctions on Japan. They, quote, placed an embargo on aviation fuel, scrap metal, steel, and iron. After Japan seized the rest of Indochina in July 1941, President Roosevelt closed the Panama Canal to Japanese shipping and added oil to the embargo list. End quote. Uh, the thought behind this was, if they didn't have the supplies, they couldn't continue to expand. And it's not that we wanted them to stop expanding for the good of the other countries in the Pacific that they were harming, but rather that the U.S. didn't want them to get in the way of their own interests and colonies in the Pacific. So... It was selfish reasoning. Of course. <laughs> yes. Mm. Now, the fact that we put embargoes and cut trade directly goes against this false narrative that we did nothing wrong. That we were not involved whatsoever in anything that could have created war. That this bombing came out of nowhere. Mm. That we were isolationists. Which is the story that we weave for this quote-unquote traditional narrative, the one you have heard in schools. That we spoon-feed our youth in the hopes that they internalize this and grow up with some hyper-nationalistic view that the United States is honest, just, and good when it is none of those things. I know I said I was going to hold my opinion till later. <laughs> but I'm going to put a little bit of it here. We don't agree on a lot of things when it comes to history and when it comes to America. Because we have different outlooks on it and... I like to give America the benefit of the doubt sometimes, but you're not fucking wrong. No. America is very hyper-nationalistic, and we are essentially the epitome of hyper-nationalism. We do the uh, national anthem so often, but then again, sports is like the centerfold of, centerfold, what the fuck am I talking about, is the centerpiece of um, America. That's what we focus ourselves around, sports. Woo, go team. And before every game is the national anthem. And in schools from pre-K all the way up to high school, I think. high school, all the way through high school, we do the Pledge of Allegiance. We do the Pledge of Allegiance every single day to the point where it seems cultish and you, everyone has it memorized and you have to stand for it and you have to respect the flag, respect the flag. That's another thing. The flag, the fact that we have it literally everywhere. If you go to any other nation, there's, I'm willing to bet you money, there's not going to be flags of that nation half as often. Because yeah. we have flags outside of houses. We have them outside of public buildings. We have them outside of pretty much freaking everywhere that we want to or can. There's an American flag somewhere. So we are very hyper-nationalistic, and, we, and we, we force-feed it to people to the point where it becomes kind of propaganda. Oh, it doesn't kind of. It is. America is, like, propaganda king, I would say, especially in the way they're writing their history. Yeah. And, um, like, that the Civil War was states' rights issues. Well, That's the propaganda. rights of the states was uh, to fucking slavery. <laughs> yeah, like... That, that, was the, uh, that was the states' issue. So exactly. what the fuck are you people talking about? So yeah, it may seem harsh for us to say that we're spoon-feeding our youth hyper-nationalistic tropes. But, but um, we but are. <laughs> the, yeah, and false truth hurts us as a nation and us as people. It doesn't help us. And if I'm being honest, I'm getting real sick of it. Because I see how much it hurts us and future generations so harsh. Yeah. 
but wrong? No, I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying here that we should have done nothing to stop Japanese expansion. That is not the case at all. In fact, since we like to think of ourselves as the greatest country in the world, I expected us to do something in response to the atrocities that Japan was committing. Think the rape of Nanking. But we weren't reacting to that at all, which is so disappointing. Yet it allies with the fact that we also didn't get involved in the war in Europe to save those people in concentration camps. We didn't. We mm. knew about that in 1941 and still didn't get involved. We had the ability to bomb crematoriums and we didn't. But that's a topic for another day. I'm just going to... Hmm. Are you just going to cut this and bring it all to the end? No, I'm, I'm going to leave it as is. Uh, because it goes along with it. So I'm just going to let it let it ride. But I have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm just going to let them sit and bring it back up at the end because I already threw my opinion in one time. So I'm just going to be like, yeah, I'm just, I, Jason I've, has got, feelings, I've got more to say. I have feelings. When they say guys don't have feelings, they're liars. I have feelings. I feel feelings like sadness and hunger and tired. I am tired of America pulling this bullshit. So... <laughs> Um, these embargoes were more of a challenge to Japan. It left them with two options. Do they roll over and accept permanent status as a subordinate to Western powers? Or do they go to war? Obviously, they chose the latter of the two options. And uh, that's to be expected by Washington. They knew that it was going to happen. They knew that the Japanese military would never be humiliated by giving in to us. Not only that, but just 10 days before Pearl Harbor, Washington had issued an ultimatum to withdraw troops from China and Indochina. They knew what would happen after making a threat like this. Yeah, and in 1939, Admiral James O. Richardson, who was the commander of the Pacific Fleet, was ordered by FDR to move his fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor. Now, while this was happening, America was also increasing their troops and forces in the Philippines, which was a in striking distance for Japanese bases that were in present day Taiwan. Mm. Now, Richardson and others warned that these could be seen as goading Japan, and they feared that they would respond to it. Well, yeah, obviously, we threatened them. Yeah. And Admiral Kanji Kato declared that, quote, American actions were like drawing a sword before a neighbor's house. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Richardson published a book after the war where he had discussed a conversation he had with FDR in which FDR said, quote, sooner or later, the Japanese would commit an overt act against the United States and that nation would be willing to enter the war. Richardson opposed this and was thus either fired or demoted. Look, FDR's own secretary of war wrote in his journal that, quote, the president shows evidence of waiting for the accidental shot of some irresponsible captain on either side to be the occasion of him going to war. So he was asking for it. He was hoping for it. And, and was this in any of our textbooks? No. It's just American isolation. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who don't go on to pursue a degree in history in college, they would never have an inkling about this side of history. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got just the bare taste of it as an honors major. And I'm so tired of history being written this way, being written by the victors, when it should, in fact, be written by the facts. Yeah. I have feelings on this, too. <laughs> but I'm just going to let it slide for now. Uh, Japan 
did obviously take these actions as the United States intending to start something with them and try to cut their empire short. Quote, when ordered to develop plans to attack the American base at Pearl Harbor, Admiral Yamamoto told his superiors that Japan could not hope to win the war shore to ensure the U.S. was too large and powerful and could draw upon seemingly inexhaustible resources. The best outcome, he said, was a long shot. If Japan could succeed in destroying the American fleet, it might be able to buy time to build up Pacific defenses strong enough to raise doubts among American military planners as to whether the costs of war might be prohibitive and thus Japan might negotiate a favorable settlement with the U.S. End quote. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, this was clearly a last-ditch last effort for them to buy themselves time. This wasn't some aggressive... Um, like, intending to harm the most amount of people they could attack. Yeah, this was them being backed into a corner and having nothing else to do but lash out. Yeah, it's like FDR kept putting pressure and pressure and pressure, hoping for a war because, honestly, I think he wanted it. We got a lot out of winning the war in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this poor country. Like I said, they're doing horrible things, especially in China, don't get me wrong, but this doesn't make what we did to them right either mm. if we were gonna go after them because of the atrocities that's what we should have done now let's add that american commanders always knew that pearl harbor would be the target of a surprise attack japan had actually initiated war with russia in 1904 the exact same way as they did with us in pearl harbor and richardson who was the one who was demoted slash fired warned about that the Army and the Navy were also aware of these concerns, and twice in the 1930s, there was actually a mock air raid conducted by U.S. warplanes, and each time, the base failed. And they, ne they never tried to make defenses enough to pass one of these tests either. Mm. That's like the equivalent of failing a breathalyzer test twice, and instead of being like, wow, maybe I shouldn't drink, continuing to accept the failure. Mm -hmm. Except in this case, American lives were on the line. Not only that, but we had also cracked some of their military codes, which provided information that the attack was inevitable. FDR told his top advisor in the, on the uh, 25th of November, quote, that we were likely to be attacked perhaps as soon as next Monday, which was December 1st. And the question raised was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without too much danger to ourselves, end how quote. How we should maneuver them into the position. We're clearly baiting them. Yes, we we did bait them, and the thing is, they fell for it. U.S. Pacific commanders were issued a war warning on November 27th and told to expect an aggressive move by Japan in the next few days. They, of course, added that, quote, The United States desired that Japan commit the first overt act, end quote. We had even obtained transmissions between Japanese spies and Japan as early as two weeks before the attack. The day before the attack, we intercepted a final transmission stating, quote, All clear. No barrage balloons are up. There is an opportunity for a surprise attack against these places, end quote. FDR had this transmission and knew this was war, but did not share it with Admiral Kemmerl, who took over for Richardson. He left him in the dark. Yeah, these transmissions were happening in Hawaii and they went straight to the White House. And instead of giving them back to Hawaii, he kept them. So what finally, I know, I know. So finally, we come to the day that will live on in infamy. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. At about 8 a.m., Japanese planes filled the sky over the base. Bombs and bullets rained down onto the boats and vessels docked at the harbor. 
at 810, an 1,800-pound bomb smashed the battleship USS Arizona. The ship exploded and sank with more than 1,000 men trapped inside. Torpedoes then sank into the battleship's USS Oklahoma with about 400 men aboard. This barrage lasted for two hours. And once the surprise attack was over, every battleship in Pearl Harbor, that is, the USS Arizona, USS Oklahoma, USS California, USS West Virginia, USS Utah, USS Maryland, USS Pennsylvania, USS Tennessee, and the USS Nevada had sustained significant damage. The attack destroyed nearly 20 ships and over 300 airplanes. It also killed 2,403 sailors, soldiers, and civilians, and another 1,000 were wounded. This is largely what is in the textbooks, and for good reasoning. Mm. American lives were lost. The devastation that America suffered from these surprise attacks that no one knew about. That's what's in the books. But we did know about it. Some people even say, scholars, had claimed that we couldn't catch them over radio transmissions between planes. And that has since been debunked. They had, you know, they had, I guess, made a few calls to the other people on the planes and we picked that up. So all of our reasoning for why this we didn't know about this is slowly starting to unravel itself. We did know about it, and we were okay with it happening so long as Japan struck first so that we had the reasoning to go to war with them, to secure our colonies in the Pacific. We didn't care about the cost of American lives yet again. We never do in history, as long as it furthers our own self-interests. And knowing all this makes it harder to hear what we did to Japanese Americans in internment camps. We orchestrated this war with Japan. We pu- and we pushed these people who had nothing to do with war because it furthered our own self-interest and united the country against a common enemy that we created. Mm-hmm. We fought this war under the guise of being the bigger and better country, but that clearly was all a very big, very long-sustaining lie. Again, the lives lost are awful. What happened was awful, but we did not get to overlook everything that happened before. And the rest is the traditional narrative of history. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'm going to say if you are done, you can end the episode and you guys can leave and whatever. But I've got a few more things that I would like to say. Um, In regards to America trying to get Japan to be the ones to make the first overt action, my dad... (laughs) (laughs) My dad taught me that if I was to ever get into a fight, don't throw the first punch, throw the last punch, so that you can say, if somebody asks you and you get in trouble for it, that it was self-defense. Yeah. So this was America's way of saying, we didn't swing first, so we're not the bad guys. Yeah. And and even when it comes to the war in Europe, we're always this, like, oh, we're isolationists, we're isolationists. But in fact, we were selling arms to allied powers way before the war, which is inherently being involved in the war there was no neutrality there no there's there was never no been isolationism American, there. no never the next thing that i want to hop on is uh america's hero complex kind of hero complex <laughs> we like to build ourselves up as the hero and in the traditional narrative push ourselves into being the hero and that we're not villains and uh we're the good guys in every situation when we're not We don't like to get involved in things until we're called out for it or enough attention is brought to it 
that action must be taken. Like, this is one of my favorite things to bring up in history. Um, R2P. Yeah. Responsibility to protect. We have the responsibility to protect people in the case of genocide, in the case of, like, human atrocities, such as everything that was going on in Germany and Poland with um, the Holocaust. With the internment camps, we created our own human atrocities. With the uh, Rohingya genocide, which a lot of people don't know about because it is brushed so far under the rug. Because if we don't acknowledge it, because if we, we don't, don't acknowledge have to it, do anything about it. Exactly. Uh, Canada brought it up to, I'm pretty sure, the UN saying that each country has the responsibility to protect these people if they are being attacked, if they are being singled out. But the thing is, the big loophole with R2P is you don't have a responsibility to protect these people if you don't acknowledge it happening. If you notice it happening, you should speak up and you should say something. You should do something. Like, we have the whole um, see something, say something yeah. with uh, sketchy people at, like, train stations or whatever. Yeah. But we don't do it ourselves on a national scale. We don't do it ourselves on a global scale. So we're doing our best to avoid having that responsibility unless there's a way that we can benefit off of it. I would say the only thing about bringing up R2P in this case is that R2P was put into effect in 1994. Yeah. So technically, like, this is the same thing, like, um, categorizing a genocide as a genocide. It wasn't created until after the Second World War. Yes. So you can't categorize. But you still know that it's an atrocity. And you still know that if you're claiming yourself to be a world power. Yes. And you want to police the rest of the world because you can get colonies out of it. You should have done something. Yes. Like, our recent war against terror in the middle east and that's straight up racist by the way i'm gonna get very fucking political right now that shit was fucked up and had no reason for us to get involved 9-11 happened yes but we went in to iran and iraq mm-hmm. and exploited them for oil mm-hmm. the only reason we went in there that we say that we went in there was to take care of terrorism but we that we created that we created but we planted ourselves in such a way that we could profit off of their oil industry. And if they didn't have the oil, we have no reason to go in there other than just attacking them, which we probably wouldn't have done. Yeah. Because there would be nothing to profit off of. Yeah. So like I'm saying, again, causation should be taught after effect. It should be fragmented history that way because if you go right from... I mean, 9-11 is still a very touchy topic for a lot of people. Obviously, a lot of American lives were lost, and it should be. I know people who died in there, too. Mm -hmm. But if we go right from 9-11 to this, and nothing happened before 9-11, we were pretty cool, we have that internalized anger from that event, and we're like, well, yeah, we should have gone into Iran and Iraq. When, in fact, we were in Iran and Iraq way before this happened, and that's why. So I think it's beneficial to look at things from an outside perspective. Yeah, to fragment history just a little bit because while atrocities like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 were awful and will always have a place in American history because, yes, American lives were lost and that is an awful thing, we should also be able to look at what happened before and be like, well, how can we stop this from happening again? I feel like we should also look at history not as, like you said, broken up and fragmented. Mm-hmm. 
but yes, broken up and fragmented, not in like the fact that we do effect before the cause, but we should look at each event individually and not this led into this. Just yeah. like look at each individual event and be like, okay, was what we did right? Which is kind of what How, we did Did we handle here. the situation correctly? Yeah. Answer in this case? No. no. No, we fucking didn't. And in a lot of cases, but it's easier to push this hyper-nationalistic agenda yeah. if you follow, the, I guess, the nationalistic roles of teaching the youth. I don't know. Like, is there a handbook on that? Yeah. So that's what I tried to do with breaking up these episodes even by a week. And that's kind of what we do in general. We don't go chronologically in anything, really. The only time we're doing chronological is when we're talking about someone's life. Yeah. Like, the assassination of JFK happened in a chronological order. Rasputin, we talked about his life and death. Because we had to know how he became to get fucking killed and shit. But... Other things like Chernobyl. Other Chernobyl. things like Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Other things like... What other big events have we talked about? The Manhattan Project. Yeah. They're not... Nothing here is chronological, and I think that gives us a better non-biased perspective. That's what I'm going to say. It's a non-biased perspective on how we handle things. And we can try to say we're non-biased, but there's oh, always going to be so biased. It's like, it's to help us form a non-biased perspective. Because we're always going to have some inherent bias in us. It's mm-hmm. just trying to find a way to detach yourself from the situation so you can see it from a different perspective. Because yeah. if you only look at it from the traditional narrative, you're only going to see what someone else wants you to see. Yeah. You're not going to see the big picture when you're just focusing in on the one little detail. Just like, um, if I'm going to go off on traditional narrative, just like Native Americans, mm-hmm. indigenous people are completely wiped from the new textbooks. Mm-hmm. And so is the Trail of Tears. Yeah. It's just like they moved. And it's like, oh, they just moved. They just moved. Thousands of people died. Mm-hmm. So because of our greed, but, but we're not going to say that. And I, I, I personally think it is such a stronger stance to recognize your faults in history because then it makes us feel like you want to make strides to not making the same mistake again. Mm-hmm. Like that's like me stubbing my toe on your desk twice and me be like, oh, it was the desk's fault. And then stubbing it again, be like, fuck you desk. Instead of me being like, wow, maybe I should step one step away from the desk. It's Maybe like, I should be more careful when walking around the desk. Yeah, it's, it's like learning from what happened. If and, you and, stick your hand in a fire enough times, you'll eventually learn that that shit's hot. But America doesn't. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's stressful for me as a, as a history major and as, and as a scholar because it's so clear. You can always find an example of something happening again in history, mm-hmm. and people are reluctant to think that that is relevant to current days but it always is yeah and i'm not going to say because i'm a a scholar or a history major because one i'm not a history major (laughs) and two i have a theater degree so do i that you can still be a scholar and a theater major so i'm not educated in being the history (laughs) major however i am paranoid to the point where i feel like if someone is to is trying to tell me something there's a good reason for it but at the same time, why are they trying to tell me this? Mm-hmm. What are they trying to get out of me? If someone reaches out to me on Facebook that I never, ever talk to... Pyramid scheme. It's <laughs> either a pyramid scheme or it's a virus. I haven't talked to you in six years. Why are you reaching out to me? Virus, pyramid scheme. 
Got it. Don't trust you. Bye-bye. But, yeah, that was our episode. It was a little dark. We got a little political at the end. Um, As we should be. Like, I, like I've... Look, the reason I wanted these topics in my birth month is because I truly feel passionate about being able to look, really look at American history and allowing ourselves to be really critical of it. Because if we just keep brushing things aside, nothing changes. And, and that's what I learned for myself. Mm-hmm. I critically thought that throughout my time in college. And that's where all of my papers come from and everything. Because if we can't look at ourselves critically, how can we make a better future? Mm-hmm. And one of the things about America is that we're allowed to do that. That's freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Yeah. And yet, when you do that, people kind of put you down for it. They're like, well, why are you saying those things? Because it's my right and because we should. Yeah. I think the strongest countries are those that are able to be critical of themselves and their history and build from it. Yep. Like I personally thought in London, that's kind of what they did. Yeah. So... Yeah, so, if you uh, uh, want to yeah. request future episodes for us, you can email us at fastpasspodcast at gmail.com. And now that's on my phone, so I can see all your messages. Yeah, yeah. I linked it. Or you can uh, DM us on Twitter at fastpast1. I'm not going to make a thirst tweet this time because um, you guys don't listen to me anyway. Or if you want any sources for this episode, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you could also email us or DM us. If you want to start a conversation with us, totally. We love that. Email us, DM us, we'll get back to you. We should be starting these conversations with one another as educated individuals who care about this country and the future of the world. Yeah. Until next time, bye-bye.